Our New Testament reading is from Acts, chapter 16, verses 11 through 40. We set sail from Troas and took a straight course to Samothrace, the following day to Neapolis, and there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate by the river where we were supposed where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had gathered there. A certain woman named Lydia, a worshiper of God, was listening to us. She was from the city of Theatria and a dealer in purple cloth. The Lord opened her heart to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul. When she and her household were baptized, she urged us, saying, "'If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my home.' And she prevailed upon us, one day, as we were going to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners a great deal of money by fortune-telling. While she followed Paul and us, she would cry out, These men are slaves of the Most High God, who proclaim to you a way of salvation. She kept doing this for many days. But Paul, very much annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her and it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. When they had brought them before the magistrates, they said, these men are disturbing our city. They are Jews and are advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to adopt or observe. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates had them stripped of their clothing and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had given them a severe flogging, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them securely. Following these instructions, he put them in the innermost cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was an earthquake so violent that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors wide open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself since he supposed that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted in a loud voice, "'Do not harm yourself, for we are all here.'" The jailer called for lights, and rushing in, he fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them outside and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They answered, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. At the same hour of the night, he took them and washed their wounds. Then he and his entire family were baptized without delay. He brought them up into the house and set food before them, and he and his entire household rejoiced that he had become a believer in God. When morning came, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported the message to Paul, saying, The magistrates sent word to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul replied, They have beaten us in public uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison, and now they are going to just charge us in secret? Certainly not. Let them come and take us out themselves. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, 
and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. After leaving the prison, they went to Lydia's home, and when they had seen and encouraged the brothers and sisters there, they departed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our gospel reading is from John, chapter 17, verse 1 through 6, verse 11, and verse 20 through 23. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, O Lord. After Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all people to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. So now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. I have made your name known to those whom you gave me from the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And now I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them in your name that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe me through their word, that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they bec may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, living God, we thank you for your presence among us. We thank you for your word and your spirit. And we thank you for the love with which you have loved us in your son, Jesus. And we pray now that you would be with us and bless us as we sit with your scriptures and we ask that you would make this time fruitful in our lives. Would you teach us? Would you enable us to hear your voice? Would you make our hearts burn within us with a love for you and for our neighbor? And would you transform us more and more into the likeness of Jesus? We commit this time to you and ask you to bless it now through Christ our Lord. Amen. So we're going through the book of Acts this summer and fall. We've been doing it all summer, but we're continuing into the fall. And it's an interesting time in the life of our church because fall is a big deal uh, in our very transient community. Fall is the season uh, when we kind of kick off new things. Fall is when people who have moved to the city recently start looking for a church to connect to. It's when we go back to school and the academic calendar begins and we start new things or we get back into old habits in a way that feels more stable than what we were doing over the summer where many of us scattered, uh, traveled, did things differently over summer. So now it's fall. And fall is when uh, this revolving door of church life uh, has this 
stream of people coming in. So if you're new to the city of Philadelphia, if you're new to Resurrection, welcome. We're glad you're here, and we look forward to opportunities to connect with you more personally. Um, but it's the first time that our incoming side of the revolving door has been wide open in a fall season since 2019 because of, you know, COVID. It was weird. Our exit door was wide open for several years, but our entry door was blocked. Uh, but now it's fall. And it's an exciting time. It's when we're really beginning to take next steps in becoming whatever we will be as a community, as Resurrection Philadelphia. And the book of Acts is this story of the early church really figuring out what this organism, this body of Christ, was going to be all about. Where Jesus, who had been crucified and then raised from the dead, was alive and walking around and talking with them for 40 days about the kingdom of God, this life-giving reign of God on earth. And then he ascended up into heaven and he poured out his spirit on the church and he said, you will be my witnesses in the city of Jerusalem and then in Judea and Samaria, the surrounding areas, and then to the ends of the earth. And he gives this group of people, this community, this charter of being witnesses to his risen life, to embody it in their life together, to speak of it to anyone who would be willing to listen, and then to enact through their deeds of mercy and love this resurrection, life-giving kind of work in the world. And so this is what we see as the story unfolds in the book of Acts, as we see this fledgling community of the church begin to live into its vocation as peacemakers, as ambassadors, as witnesses to the risen Jesus in the world. And as we trace that story, through all of its movements, what we find is Luke, the author of this story, tells us stories of conversions that happen as the early church begins to do its work. And here in this episode, we come to several surprising conversions that take place in the city of Philippi. But I want us to just pause on this word conversion and think about it for a minute, because that's a word that might make some of us feel a little weird. I was recently reading a study um, that showed that like 85% of people under the age of 40 uh, don't feel comfortable or aren't willing to share their faith with other people because it feels inappropriate. And that's an interesting thing to think about as we think about our own life with Christ, as we think about our own place in the city and what we're doing as followers of Jesus. Like, how do you feel about talking about your faith with other people? What feelings emerge? What sensations in your body come up as you begin to think about talking with another person about your own faith in Jesus? I'm a minister, like that's my job, and I sometimes feel weird about it. So I imagine you might too. I also have a conversion story that's a little bit more dramatic than most, and I still feel weird about it. And so I think it's important to just name that reality that, that we feel weird about it. And it's not necessarily a bad thing that we feel weird about it because I think that there's a way that our church has, not our church specifically, but the church has added some unnecessary weirdness to our talking about faith publicly. So if you think about sharing your faith, or if you think about evangelism, or if you think about the public, uh, the public witness of the church, lots of things might come to mind, right? So for some of us, we might have had experiences with 
uh, the most obnoxious versions of this. If you haven't, go down to City Hall. Um, they're on the sidewalk. You can hear them right now. They have megaphones and loudspeakers, and, and they'll shout at you, you know, um, scary things, and, um, and they'll urge you to, like, repent and believe in Jesus. Uh, but it's not like a welcoming or winsome way to publicly share the faith of Christ. Um, and we've seen that done in other kind of institutional ways, right? If you've maybe turned on your TV and you've seen some of those rallies where you'll have miracle workers who, if you will just send in 50 bucks, they can like send you a vial of holy water that'll change your life or whatever. They, you know, there's, there's all kinds of people that turn sharing faith into some sort of money-making venture that can easily make us all feel pretty skittish around these kinds of gimmicks, right? And they should. Those are hypocritical ventures that people have, have done. We've also seen throughout history the church um, use force in some of the uglier chapters of, of the church, use force to actually um, coerce people into quote-unquote conversion, right, as a, as a way of actually colonizing a place. And so there, there are aspects of evangelizing or mission movements that look a lot more like European colonialism than they do like the movement of this early church. All those things are real. And all those things are baked in to our experience of life in the church and in the world in the 21st century. And they might have something to do with why you feel weird, if you feel weird, about sharing your faith with others. Because it feels like it's part and parcel of this larger enterprise, much of which is icky. And I feel it too. The challenge for us, though, is that the good news of Jesus is the best news in the world. It is the message from the Creator, our living God Himself, about the very hope for the world. And it is a message that is bathed in love and hope, and it centers on this one person, Jesus who was crucified, who was raised from the dead, who ascended into heaven and now lives and reigns from heaven as the king of heaven and earth, whose kingdom will have no end. It's profoundly good news. It's the news we all need. It is the hope of the world. And as Jesus said, we don't put that lamp under the bushel, right? We don't hide it, but we share it. The calling of the church in this era is to repent of the toxic ways that we have spread the message, not by silencing ourselves, but by stepping into this apostolic vocation that we see in the book of Acts, of embodying this kind of love toward God and neighbor, of living out this mission of blessing in the world, of actually giving our lives over to our risen Savior, to follow him into the world, to live with that kind of cross-shaped love that is contagious, that is effective, that is life-giving in the world. And what we see in the story of Acts is we see what happens when the church takes up its calling to live with God in the world, to go on that journey of transformation into Christ-likeness, to cross over the boundaries where God has made peace between neighbor and neighbor, and to practice this family life across the divisions that would otherwise divide us, and instead to practice this peacemaking, this reconciliation, this unity of this new humanity gathered around Jesus that is to bear witness 
to the work of Christ and the Spirit. So I mentioned my story. I'll, I'll share it with you a little bit. Um, so some of you know, know my story, some of you don't. But um, So I came to faith when I was 20 years old. So I wasn't actually looking for religion. I wasn't actually looking for God, I didn't think. I was just a college student on campus at the University of Georgia where I went to school. Um, and it was, I was in my third year. And I just got connected to an ultimate Frisbee game through my roommate who was hospitable and invited me to get connected. But about three or four weeks after I got connected with that community and was starting to make some new friends, 9-11 happened. Um, I know some of you were in New York on 9-11. Some of you experienced that day in, um, in, in deeper ways than I could know, than many of us could know. I was in Athens, Georgia. I was a junior in college. I was not afraid for my life on that day. But our world got turned upside down too, in our own way. And what happened as a result of that earth-shattering moment is a bunch of 20-year-old guys like me started having conversations of substance and seriousness that we weren't having the day before, right? We were playing video games and hanging out and trying to do well in school, and then we find ourselves, after 9-11, having conversations about good and evil, about just responses to violence, about hope. Um, and in that moment, I found myself in a community that was seeking wisdom from God and the scriptures. It was seeking to answer some of those larger questions in and with Jesus and through the lens of this life of faith, a life shaped by the cross of Christ. And what I found in that community was something far more compelling and beautiful than anything I had experienced before. I found a richness. I found wisdom. I found a compelling kind of love and, a, and a, something bigger than ourselves. And it was captivating. And I wanted more. And so I started to wade in deeper. I started to read the scriptures. I started to draw nearer to God in prayer. I started to get more connected to the community of faith. And what I found in exploring Jesus and his way, I found something beautiful and robust and life-giving that I realized I deeply wanted. And in doing so, what I realized only later is that what I had found was actually God himself. I'd found the living God, or more appropriately, God had found me. And so it took a couple of years, really, for me to fully like, wrap my mind and life around this thing and, and to actually be baptized and join the, join the church. I was 22 when I was baptized. But really, from, from age 20 to 22, my life was this sort of like upended, newly discerning my way in the world and changed my major and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I share that simply because, okay, I have a conversion story. Um, I'm like hoping and praying that my kids don't have stories like mine because my kids are growing up in the church. You know, we, we've, you, you all are spiritual siblings and aunts and uncles to my kids and raising them and teaching Sunday school and nurturing them in the faith as part of this spiritual family that we have. So I'm praying that my kid's story is one where it's like, man, I've just always known the love of God. I'm just growing more and more up into a life of mature faith. That's what we want for our kids. My story is not like that. I wasn't raised in the church. And so I came into it as an adult. And so my story is a little more like a conversion story, you know, whatever, capital C, like we find in, this, in the book of Acts, of 
adults hearing something kind of for the first time and going, wow, and responding. If that's not your story, that's okay. In fact, if that's not your story, hallelujah, praise God, and you're here, and God is faithful to grow this covenant family of the church. Every story is beautiful in its own way. Mine happens to be a little more like some of these adults in the book of Acts. And so I relate to this in a particular way. But I want us to think about these stories of conversions because they are instructive for us, I think, because as we think about conversion, what I'm hoping we'll see is that conversion, sure, there's like a once-in-a-lifetime kind of conversion for those who hear and, and receive this news of Jesus and are baptized and joined to the church. I've done that. Some of you have done that. But there's like this daily conversion that we're all called to, right? Which is really more the thing. It's less about this one time in your life when God did something remarkable and you have a dramatic story. Some do, some don't. But it's much more about like, will you convert today? Will I convert today? Will I turn from all of the things that vie for my affection and my allegiance and compete with God for my love? Will I, will I go deeper in the way of Jesus? Will I go deeper into the journey of getting involved with God where God is at work in the world? Will I give my work to God and say, use my vocation to further your kingdom efforts? Will I open my hands with my resources and say, God, use my home and my money and my time to further your purposes in the world? Will I open my hands with my relationships and say, God, will you make my relationships not just enjoyable for me, but fruitful in the world? May they be places where life and joy and peace invade your world. Will we do that today and tomorrow? That's the far more important and interesting question as we begin to think about conversion, not do you have a story where you can point to a time when God brought you out of darkness and into light? If you do, hallelujah. If you don't, that's okay too. But will you go today toward that light, toward that life, toward that love of Jesus? Will you get involved in the current, the flow of the Spirit? Will you go in the way of the cross? These stories of conversions in Philippi show us something about what God is up to in the world that invite us deeper into, into that work. And so we see three people featured in this place. We see Lydia, who is a wealthy businesswoman. Um, she's a dealer in purple cloth, uh, possibly, maybe even presumably a widow, which is why she's the head of her household. Her household would include any children and servants that she may have had. This is a very Greco-Roman place, Philippi. So her household would have likely looked like a Roman household. Then we meet this slave girl who uh, has a spirit of divination and she's a, she's a money-making commodity for her owners. And then we see this jailer who works for the empire, all three of whom have an encounter with the spirit through Paul and Silas. Fun fact, if you notice, the first word in our passage is the word we. So in the book of Acts, there are several sections that they call the we sections, which are the places where we imagine Luke, the author, to have actually been involved as part of the group that's traveling. So Luke was with Paul 
for part of the journey, and he was not with Paul for other parts. And so we can kind of tell where Luke was on the journey with them by the places where he uses the we pronouns. And often, which is interesting, when you get these we sections from Luke, you get lots of vivid detail about seafaring voyages. And that's what we get here. We get some, some colorful detail about all the places, the itinerary of where they went on boats, sort of Luke's thing. Also, we get a description of Philippi uh, that, that is a, a very honoring description. And many commentators actually believe that, that this is because Luke is likely from Philippi and he's proud of his hometown. But the description that we get of Philippi here helps us recognize that it is unlike any of the places that we've gone so far in the story because Philippi is a Roman colony that has a special kind of privilege. There was a law called the Ius Italianus that essentially is like the law, kind of like the Italy law, if you will, that granted Italian status to certain places that were not in the boot of Italy. And so in, in the Roman Empire, if you were like actually in the boot of Italy, you didn't pay taxes the same way you did if you were part of the empire that was outside of the boot. Um, but Philippi had a special clause where it didn't pay the taxes. It was considered as if it were part of the boot of Italy, even though it's in Macedonia on the Aegean Sea. So Philippi became a place of great wealth, as you can imagine. Tax-free zones tend to be that way, right? That's why Swiss banks exist and are such a big deal. Tax-free zones tend to attract wealth. Philippi was one of those places. And Lydia, as a dealer of purple cloth, would have been a wealthy, successful businesswoman in a wealthy place. She's at the upper end of the economic spectrum. The slave girl, on the other hand, is owned. She is at the very bottom end of the economic spectrum. She's being used for profit. And so we get two people here in the same place embodying the full spectrum of wealth in Philippi. And what's interesting to me is that where all this action happens is what's called a place of prayer. So in Philippi, being far from Jerusalem and the Jewish world, presumably there wasn't a synagogue in the city. When Paul goes to a new place, the first thing he does is he goes to the synagogue, right? And he starts speaking with the Jewish people there as he himself is Jewish. Well, in Philippi, they go looking for a place of prayer, presumably because there is no synagogue to go to first. And so they go down to this spot, which they assume would be the kind of place where Jewish people or people who worship the Jewish God might gather to pray. And so they find there Lydia, who is one of these people. And they share with her the story of Jesus and what God is doing. And she believes. Uh, and then she and all of her household are baptized. And then she prevails upon them with hospitality. And she says, you've got to come to my house. In one translation, it says, and she wouldn't take no for an answer. I love it. It's this, this ethic of hospitality uh, that was really the way things were done in this part of the world, where when you received someone into your home, it was this practice of fellowship, and it really becomes the way that the church spreads in the early days and years of, of this spread of the gospel. And so Lydia's home becomes the center for the church in Philippi. And we see this at the very end of the passage where they go back to her house and visit before they leave. Lydia, we're supposed to see, becomes, by virtue of her coming to faith in Christ, and then she and her household are baptized, she becomes the patron of the church in Philippi, and her home becomes the place 
where it all starts to happen in that city. And so later when you read the letters to Paul and you read his letter to the Philippian church, that's the church that grew up out of Lydia's home through the ministry of Paul and Silas and then Lydia and all who would come after. So we see, we see Lydia come to faith and then we see in the same spot, this other, this other woman, this slave girl who has the spirit of divination by which her owners profited because she would help them find you know, resources and things like that. Um, and she starts exclaiming as they go to the place of prayer that these guys are servants of the most high God, right? Slaves of the most high God. She sees in them something like herself. Now their, their enslavement is very different. She's in an exploitative relationship with owners. Paul and Silas are servants of the living God who brings forth life and wholeness. But that word, slave or servant, is a word that Paul himself uses to describe his own relationship to Jesus. Not an exploitative one, but a relationship of service to the living Lord. But this slave girl, she sees in them something like herself, and so she's calling them out. And Paul, he says he's very annoyed, and that's why he heals her. That's weird to me. Maybe that's weird to you. I think what's happening here is I've studied this passage and read some of the commentaries this week. I think what's happening here is Paul wants to make explicit the difference between what she's experiencing in her slavery and what he and Silas are experiencing in their servitude to the Lord Jesus. He doesn't want them to be misconstrued through the kind of slavery that she's experiencing. And so as a demonstration of their relationship to this life-giving Lord, he casts out the spirit that's in her and heals her. And that upsets the owners something terrible. And this is where we see actually the friction between the gospel of Jesus and the economic system of Philippi. Because the owners now can no longer make money from their slave girl, and they're mad. And so they have Paul and Silas dragged into the marketplace before the authorities. They have them beaten and then thrown into jail. It's interesting that Paul doesn't bring up his citizenship at this point. He'll bring it up later, but if he had just played his citizenship card, he could have avoided the beating, presumably. But he keeps silent, and that'll be important. So there they are in jail, and there, Paul and Silas, they're in jail, and presumably the jail is connected to the jailer's house. This is the way things were set up at that point. And they take them in past the entryway cell all the way into the deep cell, and then, for good measure, put their feet in chains, right? And so there they are. They're in, like, the belly of the jail. And they're singing and they're praying. It is fascinating to me that everything that happens in Philippi, as we see the message go forward, begins with worship. Where, where does Lydia meet the Spirit? The place where Paul and Silas are going to the place of prayer. Where does the slave girl experience healing? At the place where Paul and Silas are going for prayer. Where does the Philippian jailer begin to encounter the Spirit where the prisoners themselves are singing and praying as they are in chains? And so they're praying, and this earthquake happens, and their chains are broken, and the jail flings open, and the lights are out, it's dark, and the jailer finds himself in this place where he's going to take his own life. 
Now, the reason this is the case is probably because he was going to experience either massive public humiliation or even public execution because the jailer was responsible for keeping the prisoners in. So if you escape, if the prisoners escape, the jailer's on the hook for that, okay? So he's presuming that the doors have flung open, the chains are broken, so the prisoners must be gone. Therefore, he's in a bad way. And so he's about to take his own life. But Paul, somehow perceiving that this is what's happening, shouts to him and says, don't do it. We're all still here. They've been given a freedom, but they didn't take it. The prisoners stayed put. Every time we see privilege come up in this passage, the privilege is used for the good of others, not for self-benefit. Lydia's wealth becomes really the thing that supports and nurtures the church in Philippi. Her home, probably a nice house, becomes the place where people meet God. Paul and Silas, their citizenship, they don't use it to get out of the beating, but they will use it to protect the honor of the church once they're released. The freedom of open jail cell and broken chains, they don't use it to escape, but actually they forego that freedom to preserve and save the life of the jailer. And he's so moved by this that he asks them what he must do to be saved. We have no idea what's in his mind about what that means. Has this guy, this, you know, Roman, uh, this Roman presumably pagan jailer who works for the empire, when he says, what must I do to be saved? We have no idea what he must be thinking, what that means. But he asks the question and the answer is just simple. Receive this Jesus by faith. And so he does and he and his household are baptized and then he does the same thing Lydia did. He opens up his home, he allows them to stay, and he feeds them. And so when morning comes, and these guys are all now living in the jailer's house as equals and friends and free people, the magistrates come and they're like, all right, these guys probably aren't that bad, let's go ahead and let them go. The jailer comes in and he tells them, okay, you can go now, and he says, wait, no, hold on. They publicly beat us, they publicly shamed us, and now they want us to go in secret? No way. We're citizens. And at that moment, Paul plays the citizen card. You see, it's illegal to arrest or beat a Roman citizen without due process of a trial. That might have been helpful information the day before when they were getting beaten and <laughs> incarcerated without a trial. He doesn't play that card then. He only plays that card when it's the honor of the church that's at stake. He takes the beating. He takes the wrongful incarceration. And then when he's let go, he's like, actually, you imprisoned a citizen. I want you to publicly exonerate us. It's actually quite similar to a story I was reading of Nelson Mandela when he was wrongly imprisoned for 30 years in South Africa as a political prisoner of racial apartheid there. And when it came time for him to be released, the president sent a message to him. He's like, you can go now. Um, he was held in Cape Town in prison for 30 years. And he asked him to leave quietly and Mandela did the exact same thing that these guys did here. He's like, no, I may be from Johannesburg, but Cape Town has been my home for the last 30 years. I have people to thank for taking care of me. 
And so he didn't leave quietly like he was supposed to, like he was asked to by the people in power. He didn't do the thing that was politically expedient. He's like, no, I was in here unjustly. I'll leave when it's my time to leave. I'll make that decision. And that's exactly what we see Paul and Silas do here. They're asked to leave quietly, but they're like, I think we're gonna go see Lydia first. And they go to her house. They experience the joy of the fellowship of the saints in Philippi. They encourage her, and then they go on their way, on their own time, as exonerated free people. And this is a powerful and beautiful story of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Whether you're looking at it through the lens of Lydia and what it's like to be a person of wealth and privilege whose life is transformed and you're brought into the work of God's kingdom as one who opens your home and supports the work. Or if you're one who's suffering the oppression of unjust rule like this slave girl and you're liberated by the act of God who touches lives and sets them free or whether you're this jailer who's working for a corrupt empire, whose encounter with the spirit transforms him and gives him a whole new way to think about like his being in the world and his belonging in Rome as now a citizen of a new kind of kingdom and a new kind of king. But then also with Paul and Silas who are going out into the world as witnesses, stewarding their citizenship, stewarding their freedom, testifying through both words and actions this good news of Jesus and sharing it with the world. It's through the lives of these people that the hope of Christ has gone out to the world. And the invitation for us today and in this, this week, this year, this community, is to enter in this same kind of way, to, to hear and receive that good news of Jesus, to receive that invitation to get involved with God, to open up our lives and to be converted again today to what God is doing in the world, going deeper with Jesus, going deeper into the world, loving God and loving neighbor, being transformed more and more to the likeness of Christ so that, those, so that our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers would experience through our lives this saying that we read in our gospel reading, as I have loved you, so love one another. That the effect of your life on the world would be that people would experience the love of God as God has loved us in Christ through you and through us as a profoundly noble calling. And my hope and my prayer for us as a community is that we would live into it and that as we do, we would know more and more the fullness of the joy of abiding in Christ and sharing his love with one another. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your love, for your life-giving spirit, and we pray that you would move among us and do a, a mighty work. Renew us and transform us, we pray, by the grace of your Holy Spirit. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.